Welcome to today's podcast episode answering your questions about therapeutic options for pain management. This program is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic REMS program companies and is provided by Clinical Care Options in partnership with the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, Alliance to Advance Comprehensive Integrative Pain Management, Practicing Clinicians Exchange, and ProCE. Our faculty for this podcast include Dr. Samantha Catanzano, board-certified psychiatric pharmacist and clinical assistant professor in the Division of Pharmacy Practice at the University of Texas at Austin College of Pharmacy, Dr. Mark Keralt, assistant professor and director of the Musculoskeletal Institute at the University of Texas Health, Austin, and Dr. Andrew Friedman, section head of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Virginia Mason Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. So there's some questions here related to gabapentin. So I'll start with some of those. Um, The first one is from um, Letha, who asks about the addiction and abuse of gabapentinoids, and if we could please discuss that. So in general, there is a potential for misuse and dependence with gabapentinoids, though a lot of the data is still in its infancy, but there are certainly case reports and um, larger trials coming out exploring this, but the specific risk appears to be in those with either a history of or with a current substance use disorder. So that definitely should be part of that assessment and shared decision-making discussion with the patient, you know, thinking about past medical history, past psychiatric history, um, and continuing to monitor. Now, does this mean that it's contraindicated in a patient with a history of a substance use disorder? Absolutely not. A lot of that is going to depend on context in terms of how recent maybe that substance use disorder was, what type of substance use disorder, are they engaged in any type of supportive treatment for that? Um, Active substance use disorder certainly warrants caution and ideally would be in uh, in combination with their psychiatrist or if they have an addiction medicine specialist. I agree completely. Addiction is a separate disease. It has to be considered when you're talking about uh, risks and benefit and uh, in a particular individual. So uh, in a patient without addiction, the concern is much, much less. And certainly when we're thinking about risks with gabapentinoids, concurrent medication use is a big one that tends to influence relative risks as well as odd ratios when we're thinking about over uh, potential like overdoses or poisonings, uh, respiratory depression. Another question from Huma, how long do gabapentinoids take to kick in in the event of chronic pain? So generally we like to, and one of the things that I do when I'm educating patients is I talk to them specifically about treatment expectations and that these medications don't work right away. Oftentimes benefit can be seen within the first two to three weeks of treatment, but generally an adequate trial is considered about eight weeks. That uh, definition varies a little bit in the literature but it does take time to receive full benefit from these medications. So almost similar to our antidepressants. Um, Mark, I know you're going to say something. Yeah, so uh, in in this thing called chronic pain, which is chronic nonspecific pain, sensitization, however you want to label that, in my clinical experience, probably 90, 95% of those patients also come with an interrupted sleep pattern. We dose at night preferentially at first, so we use 300 milligrams progressing to 600 and 900, the first target is restoring sleep. And that typically, we would say increase by 300 milligrams per night up to 900 milligrams to the point of restoring at least seven, hopefully closer to eight hours of largely solid sleep. Once that occurs, we say within a week, you should notice a significant improvement, not 
but significant improvement where I feel I think I'm on the right trajectory. So that's our typical message. Once sleep is restored, we tend to get an improvement within a week. Another common question that goes along with, well, how long do these medications take to kick in or to really see some positive effect comes the question of, well, how much pain reduction am I actually going to see with medication treatment? And that's another big education piece that I counsel patients on because oftentimes I'll, I'll even ask the patient, you know, what is your expectation or what do you foresee the role of medications? And if their goal is to be pain-free, I'm very upfront that um, our medications do not result in a pain-free life. At best, in clinical trials, what's considered a clinically significant reduction in pain for most studies is only 30% reduction, depending on what type of pain assessment they're looking at. Some may even look at up to 50%. So I'm usually telling patients, like, on a good day, we're getting 30 to 50% reduction from the medication piece. Um, now, that being said, that's a great place to bring in the importance of all those non-pharmacological aspects. And combination of those is probably going to result in more improved pain, but the thought that a medication is going to result in a pain-free day um, is a rare rarity. I've never seen it. Um, Mark, what are your thoughts or what do you kind of educate patients on in terms of expectation for pain reduction with both non-pharm as well as pharmacological treatment? Yeah, the, the most important thing is to have the patient understand this condition called chronic pain. It is, it, it's a chronic condition. I, I Use an analogy of hypertension. We don't we don't cure many things in 2022. We control blood pressure, we control diabetes, we control thyroid, we control cholesterol, etc. So it's not a cure; it's a control. And just like these other conditions, it's not just a, a one-trick pony. You don't just do medicines alone for high blood pressure. You do that in combination with other non-pharmacological strategies. So really, the role of medicines is to help you help the patient. You know, help have the bandwidth to start working on these other factors that can be ultimately independently therapeutic uh, and maybe uh, but maybe in combination with the medications as needed. So the key is to understand what's like setting realistic expectations. This is a long journey. It's not a cure is key. Another question from Tian. If tapering a skeletal muscle relax relaxant, is tapering required or recommended? Yeah, yeah, well, it's not necessarily required. Um, a lot of that is going to depend on dose, duration of use, whether or not there's the potential for dependence there. Most of these medications you're going to want to taper, and not just from a potential withdrawal standpoint, but also to monitor for recurrence of pain, similar to what we would do with antidepressants for the treatment of depression and anxiety. Um, we definitely taper slower there to monitor for recurrence of symptoms, but with gabapentinoids um, with muscle relaxants, generally we're going to do a taper um, rather than abrupt cessation. And certainly with muscle relaxants, you can see withdrawal symptoms from some of them. Mark, what has been your experience or recommendation for patients? Well, Sam, like you uh, explained in the lecture, you rarely use muscle relaxers in the treatment of chronic pain conditions. So it's really not a direct indication. So I rarely use, if ever, muscle relaxers for chronic pain, you know, for acute pain or for maybe a perceived separate exacerbation of pain in a chronic pain state, maybe so. So there really isn't an issue for me of, of tapering a uh, muscle, uh, muscle relaxant. Now on the other, uh, for gabapentinoids, for example, what I really want to see is stability, pain is controlled for at least a month, hopefully two to three months, and patient regaining full function and working on other tools. Uh, just like high blood pressure, if you control high blood pressure medicine and then you stop it in six months, it's, there's no cure. You're going to blood pressure and go right back up unless you've made other changes. You you focused on exercise on a regular basis. You're doing some meditation. You quit your stressful job. You did something else. 
in the absence of changing anything else, when you stop a medicine, you're likely to go right back to where you were. So we using that same sort of analogy, we say this is a long-term condition. What else can we do to manage this? And so we taper medicines like the long-term medicines that we talked about, gabapentinoids or SNRIs, based on how a patient is doing and what are the tools, uh, the our strategies they develop. So it's a it's again a very individualized discussion. That's the key of this uh, lecture is the understand your patient uh, as a person and see how they're doing overall. Yeah, and to my knowledge, there are no relapse prevention trials essentially for you know gabapentinoids or SNRIs or TCAs for the treatment of pain, like we have in the treatment of depression and anxiety, where we know percentage of patients are going to experience recurrence of anxiety and depression if their antidepressant is stopped at X point of time. Um, we don't really have a lot of information about that for when we're using duloxetine just for the treatment of pain. You know, do we treat for six to nine months like we do for first episode depression? Do we treat longer? It has to really be based on, you know, the patient's pain syndrome and their clinical picture, um, how well it's improved function of their life, that understanding of the risk benefit. Okay, if we are going to discontinue for X reason, we may potentially expect a recurrence in pain. And I don't know about you, Mark, but I think some patients are able to taper off of um, a medication and maybe have lower levels of pain, which is probably due to just other lifestyle changes or interventions. But many of them, like you spoke to, this is going to be a chronic condition. And so trying to balance long-term medication use, again, with those expectations is important. Exactly. Earlier in the lecture, I, I talked about uh, using the, the, the best time to learn how to swim is not when you're drowning. So if someone's coming to me in a high level of chronic pain, the medications sometimes help to get to a, a baseline, a lower baseline level of pain so that the patient can work on these common behavioral strategies, work on exercise strategies. And over time, they get confident that, hey, my body, I can play tennis again, I feel well. And so this confidence in how well my body is doing allows me to stop the medication and see how well I do with less medicine or no medicine. And what I've seen sometimes after a period of, you know, sometimes in six months or a year, they'll come back and need another course of whatever medication we use for a few months again, and then and they go on and off. If they find out that they're on the medicine more than not, then they elect to, they may elect. And is it on an individual basis to remain on the basis for a long term without stopping and starting? There's two questions here. I'm going to kind of combine them because they're similar, one from Susan and one from Joni, but asking or speaking to the fact that gabapentin has kind of become the drug du jour um, with the desire to avoid opioids and benzos. Um, however, there's a lot of side effects that people are seeing with that. And certainly the fact that they're in, you know, the beers list of avoiding, um, especially in our older population. So one, how do we have any comments about these risks versus suggestion of use? And then how do we help patients cope with the sedation side effect of gabapentin? So I would say um, appropriate dose titrations is one way to try to help mitigate those side effects. So starting low, titrating slow. Um, again, oftentimes like patience is going to be the biggest virtue here. And sometimes patients who are experiencing side effects, potentially that dose was just titrated too rapidly. Um, you know, we spoke to the fact that these medications can take a few weeks to start seeing effect. Again, adequate trials really considered about eight weeks. So if we're making a lot of dose titrations within that period of time, and all of a sudden they're up to like 3,600 milligrams a day um, in the first two weeks, then you know maybe that was overshot a little bit. So I think 
cautious dose titrations, thinking about the particular patient, their comorbidities. Do they have any additional risk factors for these side effects, other medications, just disease states? Knowing that many patients do build tolerance to these over time, so educating up front. I think one strategy we commonly use is starting with that nighttime dosing, especially for the sedation. Um, Half-life is fairly short, so the likelihood that most patients who have healthy renal function are going to have that next day sedation is much lower. So I think those are some of the strategies that we use. And again, if it's not working for the patient because of side effects, we do have those other options. So we don't just need to keep sticking with it. And I don't know, Mark, you want to speak to like just experience with like switching from gabapentin to pregabalin in terms of potential benefit for tolerability um, or benefits there. That was also another question that kind of ties in with this. Exactly. Yeah. So I agree that uh, going hydrogen slowly is the key. And most patients adjust to the sedative side effect of gabapentin. If it is not tolerant to patients, these medicines should help and have no or no significant side effects. So I'd say it's about 5% of patients who report the sedative side effects or word finding uh, problems. If, if the side effect is the cognitive word finding or sedative uh, side effect, I tend to switch to pregabalin. And, and at that point, I, not everybody, but there seems to be a lesser percentage of people reporting that kind of cognitive side effect. So that's my usual strategy. And if, if the gabapentin is not tolerated, obviously we have other uh, therapeutic categories to choose from, the SNRIs or TCAs. Part of that may be due to pregabalin's more consistent absorption. So patients may not be getting variability in terms of absorption like they might be with gabapentin. Certainly thinking about other agents that might be risky with use like opioids or just medications that might slow down um, the GI tract. That change in motility can also impact gabapentin's absorption, which again is already variable and saturable, whereas pregabalin tends to be a little bit more consistent and predictable. Um, so sometimes that is a method. If there's tolerability issues with gabapentin, let's try pregabalin. Um, potentially, we can maybe just use lower doses because absorption is better. Um, or same thing with inefficacy. If someone is not maybe responding to gabapentin and we're at a typical therapeutic dose and we've been there for several weeks, potentially switching to pregabalin patients will sometimes respond better to that particular medication. Let me add one more thing. It, um, I only really count sedation in the morning if sleep is fully restored. So if you're still sleeping less than seven hours and interrupted, then sometimes conversely, I'll increase the nighttime gabapentin dose or do something to restore sleep because many times uh, cognitive side effect or sedation is a reflection of sleep deprivation. And we actually need to increase the medicine paradoxically. So I, that's a critical question to ask. There was one question on here about safe, safely switching a patient. This is from Charlene. Um, how would I safely switch a patient who has been on Prozac for 35 years over to an SNRI to help with their chronic pain as well as their depression and anxiety? Um, there's no right answer here. There are multiple switch strategies. Oftentimes that's going to be dependent on comfort as a provider or a clinician um, and also potential history of the patient. So um, getting a feel for has this patient ever tried switching to an antidepressant in the past? What was their experience like? If they have missed doses or have been late for doses, have they ever experienced discontinuation syndrome? Oftentimes with Prozac or fluoxetine, we're not worried about that as much because of the long half-life. It has kind of a taper built into it in a way. 
Oftentimes, patients can tolerate direct switches, so from one antidepressant to another, but that does get more complicated when it's different mechanisms of action. So usually we would prefer a direct switch if it's from an SSRI to an SSRI um, rather than an SSRI to an SNRI, um, but that could potentially be done as long as there's good education and thought planning up front. But generally, depending on the dose of an SSRI, um, you would potentially want to taper down at least to um, a moderate dose maybe a low dose, and then you could do a direct switch there from Prozac to an SNRI. Um, again, just keeping in mind the longer half-life, um, it's often recommended to have a little bit of a washout period, um, so three to five days, potentially longer, especially if it is an older adult, but there's really no right way, so it's often going to be dependent on how the patient is potentially tolerating that, um, but literature does support that most patients can tolerate a direct switch, and we don't necessarily see disruptions in control of their anxiety and the depression, but certainly something you'd want to monitor more closely for during the initial, the, those initial few weeks and few months of making that switch. Mark, there's a question from Nancy. Um, curious your thoughts here. Can you discuss prevention of the escalation of chronic pain? Um, like anything else, prevention is better than treatment. So what strategies do you re recommend at the onset of pain? Chronic pain, we know it's a chronic condition that typically does not escalate over time. It's typically a static condition. We explain that patients understand just like say migraines, you are not going to have a continuous migraine. You have episodes where it flares and goes back down. So don't be afraid of the flare. It's going to happen. It's part of the, the condition. And again, addressing patient's fear, addressing the expectation, oh my God, it's going to happen again. I'm going I'm to go to a horrible place. As over time, you realize that no, I've done this a thousand times before. This is going to flare. It's going to come back down. So a lot of it is that education, the cognitive behavioral therapy, the you know, graded exposure. This is okay. I'm, I'm okay. So I, I, my experience after 25 years or more is I don't see this kind of gradual getting worse as a condition of this thing called chronic pain. It's typically a relatively stable condition with episodic flares. And the goal of treatment is to minimize the baseline pain and then to put more time between the flares. Uh, so that's really the goal of treatment. Another question here. Do you have any suggestions on managing patients with CRPS that may require a multimodality approach? What do you start with? And this is from Patty. That is a complicated process, but again, the same pain management strategies will apply. So all of these things are multimodal uh, strategies, patient understanding, manage patient expectations, and then again, having a team of providers to work with the patient for their particular pain. Yeah, and I would say starting with what's easiest and most feasible for the patient, right? Because what they're going to be able to commit to and maintain over the long term is likely going to have the most benefit versus something that they may not have transportation or finances for, or if they're just not on board with it from, you know, kind of a commitment standpoint. So that definitely needs to be considered. Uh, Dr. Cotnazano, uh, maybe you can take this question. Can you describe uh, the distinction between opioids and opiates? Mirat wants to know. Yeah, it's a great question. So those terms are often used interchangeably. Opiates particularly refer to the naturally occurring opioids. So that would be like heroin, morphine, for example. Opioids is more of the umbrella term that really refers to all medications or substances that would fall under that class. So including both naturally occurring synthetic, semi-synthetic. So that's really where that technical distinction comes into play. 
Um, but again, they are used interchangeably, but technically when we are thinking of these medications or substances as a whole class, opioids would be kind of that preferred term since it, again, is more of that umbrella term and includes all sources of um, opioids. Thanks. And uh, Dr. Cotanzano, I might uh, also boot this one to you from Peggy. Um, do you use opioids for severe diabetic neuropathy in dialysis patients? That's a good question. Um, and of course, this is probably also going to vary based on everyone's individual practices and, you know, where I practice and the providers that I work with generally know, um, but certainly are, are patients who have those conditions on them. Yes. There are certainly other medications that have greater benefit, um, as well as improved safety profiles, specifically for diabetic neuropathy um, outside of opioids, keeping in mind that every medication is going to be variable in terms of whether it is dialyzable or not, or that risk for accumulation, especially um, in between doses. So that would likely steer the choice of opioid if that was going to be considered for that particular patient. If all other options have been exhausted, um, I feel like often we see some of our opioids with um, those monoamine activities be used or even buprenorphine for potential benefits in neuropathic pain. But medications like tramadol, for example, are often not our preferred agent to go to with um, significant renal impairment. But again, it would just depend on the specific um, dialyzable aspects of a drug um, and patient-specific factors. So not first line for sure, um, but if it's done, it should um, definitely have a, a interprofessional kind of approach to it and someone really monitoring for risks of side effects. John asked, uh, in my state, a family member of a patient on opioid medications is eligible to get a naloxone reversal agent in case of an overdose for the patient. Is there a cost to the family member or is this free through a program that is federally funded? I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Uh, in our state, in Washington, uh, any uh, patient can get uh, a naloxone uh, agent for free. Uh, I think that probably varies from state to state. Dr. Cottonzano, do you know? Yeah, most states do have what's called a standing order to where anyone, whether they are prescribed an opioid themselves or not, can go to a pharmacy, for example, and just purchase it there um, behind the counter. Um, it can also be run through insurance, so you don't have to have a prescription to do that. A lot of people will pay cash out of pocket, depending on the formulation available. A lot of people will purchase the um, nasal spray of naloxone, um, usually about $40 or so. Insurance can help bring that copay down, but also to point out that there are a lot of harm reduction programs and statewide as well as national initiatives where you can actually obtain um, different formulations of naloxone for free. Um, and not have to pay out of pocket. So that will just depend on what's kind of available in that area. But um, that is a fairly widespread initiative to where people can obtain that for either a family member or if there's someone who maybe works in an environment where they may be exposed to someone who might be experiencing opioid toxicity or potential overdose. Thank you. Uh, Adriana asked uh, how to differentiate dependence from addiction. And I'll, I'll take that one. It's often really hard you know, we think about these things as very distinct black and white things. So if a person is addicted, it's very clear if they're simply dependent because of expected consequences of ongoing therapy, that should be very clear. But in reality, most of the time, there's some gray zone here, and it's, it's quite hard to, to determine. And I've talked to a lot of experts about this, uh, and they have the same answer. And so what we tend to do is very carefully track aberrancies of patients and as if those aberrancies start to add up, many frequent uh, requests for early refills, 
some of the more serious aberrancies, you know, obviously selling uh, medications or uh, using them in fashion for which they haven't been uh, prescribed, for example, crushing or snorting opioids. Those are pretty strong indications of an opioid use disorder, but it's often really difficult to tell. And so you need to follow your patients over time and, and track what's happening with them. And if that concern about uh, opioid use disorder uh, occurs, uh, have a conversation about that. And honestly, um, if these uh, early refills are coming very frequently, the usual uh, approach is to consider a transition to a buprenorphine product, which would be appropriate in, in either of those situations. Okay, keeping in mind his diagnosis of hemochromatosis and multiple joint arthritis, as well as his uh, current blood work showing mildly ad abnormal liver functions and uh, some uh, renal dysfunction, which agent would be most appropriate for Vince? A, a fentanyl patch. B, morphine IR. C, morphine ER. Or D, oxycodone IR. So the answer here would be oxycodone immediate release. Okay, uh, Bellardo asked, what would be the second best opioid option for Vince? Thank you for that. Um, Dr. Catanzano, would you want to answer that one? Yeah, sure. Um, and just to kind of go back to our conversation, you know, many of our opioids, even if they have a recommendation for dose adjustment in someone with renal impairment, doesn't mean that they can't be used. It's just kind of considering that you would likely need to start at a much lower dose. And that probably applies to any opioid in a patient with either renal or hepatic function. Um, we likely want to start at a lower dose no matter what, um, and specifically avoiding those where we know that there is a much higher risk of accumulation. So like morphine, for example, codeine would also not be recommended. Fentanyl has actually a fairly, I guess, safer profile for patients with renal impairment. It's just not preferred for someone who's opioid naive. Hydrocodone could be an option with a consideration for dose reductions. We talked about usually a 50% dose reduction there. Um, hydromorphone is also another option where, again, probably using lower dose, but tend to be thought of a little bit more safer versus something like morphine or codeine, where that risk of accumulation is higher for someone who is maybe opioid tolerant, or maybe none of those options are available. Um, then again, like a fentanyl patch um, could potentially be appropriate with close monitoring, just because we don't need to dose adjust as much with fentanyl. I don't know if you have any other thoughts, Dr. Friedman, but that's yeah, kind of... I also was considering oxymorphone uh, in this condition, which is, uh, you know, something that can be safe. We, I personally am concerned about the, the longer acting oxymorphone formulations, but uh, that would be a potential drug as well. Uh, Julia uh, wanted to address geriatric differences in precautions, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. The um, older patients, uh, actually, uh, if we look at opioid overdose from prescription opioids, that's been going down across the country. However, the opioid overdose frequency in geriatric patients has actually been increasing. And uh, opioids are more dangerous for older patients for a number of reasons. One, they tend to accumulate multiple drugs, and so their risk of uh, co-prescription goes up. They tend to be a little bit more isolated. And so you know that lack of social interaction and lack of other people looking out for their uh, well-being is also a, a significant contributor to problems that older people have with uh, opioids. In addition, there are metabolic changes that occur with older folks. And uh, I'd recommend if you are interested in looking into this in more detail, uh, look at uh, the BREE, B-R-E-E, 
document that's a state of Washington document, uh, the Bree Collaborative, they've uh, recently put out a nice review of uh, opioids in older individuals. And their main recommendations are consider reducing co-prescription by eliminating such things as gabapentinoids, anticholinergics, muscle relaxants, and especially be careful with morphine as older people will have more variable renal function, and that can cause uh, significant fluctuations in their dose. Mirad asked, well, there aren't maximum doses for most opioids. Aren't there ceiling effects? And would that limit the dose of a given opioid that should be used? I have an opinion about that, uh, Dr. Capizano, do you? <laughs> I do. Um, so I'll provide some of you know my thoughts here. The ceiling effect, it's not like a black and white concept, which I think is often what it's thought to be at X dose. Like this is where you just don't get any more analgesia. This is also going to just depend specifically on the mechanism of action of the specific opioids. So whether it is full agonist, partial agonist, it's very much a gray area. I would say that opioid full agonists are generally thought to not have a ceiling effect. But again, that's probably going to be dependent on side effect profile um, uh, of that particular opioid and the patient individual factors, as well as the metabolism. So for example, codeine, which is a full agonist, technically does have what is considered to be a ceiling effect, even though that dose range does vary. And that's partly due to the fact that the metabolism of codeine to morphine um, is going to be limited by someone's ability to actually metabolize that medication. Um, so metabolism of the drug plays a large role in the quote unquote ceiling effect. So that's just some of, you know, my kind of like thoughts and opinions about it, but like really with any of them, if you continue to push the dose, you'll get changes. They're just going to be less versus at lower doses. So really looking at more of the incremental changes versus the black and white thought process that at X dose, you're just not going to get anything. You certainly could and probably going to get more of the side effects versus the benefit. Dr. Friedman. Yeah, I would just add that um, studies that have looked at this have shown, you know, significant increases in doses may reduce the visual analog scale score, but they have not been associated with an increase in function, and they're very clearly associated with significant increases in risk. So uh, I would agree with everything that you said. And thank you so much for all the questions. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get to uh, any more of those as we're at time now. Uh, so thank you so much for your participation. Thanks, everyone.